HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode of A Taste of the Past is brought to you by Gustiamo, the online store for Italian ingredients and pantry staples. Learn more at gustiamo.com. This week on Meet and 3, we're talking organization. Not mise en place or keeping your knives in a row, but labor organizing. If any restaurant worker is listening to this and is like, yes, I want something different, but I don't know where to start. First step they just need to do is to find one of us and get plugged in. As independent contractors, they can't directly tell people, you know, when or, or where to work, but by using sort of gamified nudges to push people, that is sort of how they um, move the workforce around. Tune in to Meet in 3, available wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this journey through culinary history. And you know, it's that season again to brush off the grills and fire up the wood and take the cooking outside. And on this episode of A Taste of the Past, we are talking barbecue. And while it's enjoyed throughout the U.S., barbecue has long been recognized as Southern cooking. But the originators of barbecue have not been given their culinary due. The African-American culture has been largely ignored as the progenitor of this culture of barbecue. And as author and soul food scholar, as his moniker is, Adrian Miller is quick to point this out in his new book, Black Smoke, African-Americans and the United States of Barbecue, published by University of North Carolina Press, just about a month ago. The merits of sauces and styles can be discussed from shore to shore, but that may not be as essential as correcting the narrative itself, as Miller points out. And he explains that barbecue is American food with Southern roots, from plantation slave pitmasters sharing their flavors and fire. And I want to welcome you, Adrian. Before... I began, I, I just got caught up in telling you how much I really enjoy your book. It is just, it's terrific, and it has, it's just packed with so much information. Everything from, you know, current recipes, you have some good recipes in there too, um, mm-hmm. but it's not a cookbook. Don't get me wrong, people. It's not a cookbook. This is a book of serious history as well, um, and you just, I mean, you go everywhere from 
from, you know, the 1500s and, and Columbus's second voyage to, to, you know, back to even further to West African roots. And it's just, it's quite a ride, I have to say. And, you know, you kind of ask the question yourself, like, how did barbecue or when did barbecue become so black? And it's a really interesting question that you ask. Um, and I think you, you nailed it in, in your introduction when you said, as black smoke will explain, defining barbecue locally and globally is highly dependent on time, place, class, race, and a fair amount of myth-making. <laughs> and I think that kind of wraps it up. We don't have to record anymore. That's it. <laughs> That's, Mic drop. Yeah, right. It says it all. I mean, what do you? What did you want to accomplish with this book? Yeah. Well, first of all, I just want to thank you for having me on your podcast again. It's no, still good course. to be with you. Yeah, I mean, it's always you, you're such a you're such a great guest because you're always so full of of interesting historical information. Yeah. So, you know, one thing I wanted to do, um, this book, Black Smoke, is part celebration, part restoration. So mm -hmm. I wanted to celebrate African-American barbecue culture. And then I also wanted to restore African-Americans to the center of the barbecue narrative because of late, African-Americans have been pushed to the sidelines. And I thought as part of that restoration process, I really needed to see, you know, what can I suss out about barbecue's origins? Mm -hmm. um, you know, the the tricky thing is that barbecue history is so hazy, and I use that word intentionally, because um, it wasn't well documented. And the people who took time to document often had agendas. And so we can't really, we can't always trust what they were even saying. So with all of that, I wanted to just see, okay, where, where did barbecue start? How did it develop? Because the story that we get about your uh, Caribbean forms of barbecue are, are different than the way barbecue developed in the South with this trench method and cooking right. whole animals instead of over a raised platform with a small fire, with a, you know, with a slow fire. So I just wanted to suss all of that out. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and when I I didn't do I didn't give you a a, a just introduction. I forget because you know I have said it so many times every time you've been on, and I want <laughs> I want my listeners to know that. Um, I mean, you this is you have been doing this type of research for quite some time. Um, with your first book, Soul Food Kitchen, which won you a 2014 James Beard Award. Well, that was that. That was not your first. You had. Wait, yeah, that was my first and only so far. Food. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Soul Food. Right. Um, and well, in the president's kitchen, the president's kitchen cabinet, the, you know, the, the uh, secret cooks mm -hmm. behind the president's cabinet, you, a lot of stuff came out there that was akin to this barbecue research as well. But um, the Soul Food uh, was, you know, you're really, you bring a lot of that into this too, because while it's not, you know, soul food is not barbecue and barbecues is basically soul food. Um, you know, it's, it's this African American influenced now American cuisine. It's, it's a real jumble. Um, yeah. but you are, I mean, by, by education and, 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 uh, profession. I mean, you are a lawyer, you uh, studied international relations at Stanford and, and got your law degree at Georgetown University, and you were a special assistant to President Bill Clinton. And um, for a very important program, the Initiative for One America, that was the first mm -hmm. freestanding office in the White House, addressing the issues of, of race 
um, religion and ethnic reconciliation. You were also uh, a policy analyst for uh, Colorado Governor Bill Ritter, and you live in Denver, Colorado. And something that people might not know about you is that you are, you have been for a while, the executive director of the Colorado Council of Churches. And as such, the first African-American and first lay person to hold that position. And I can see where, now we know Bill Clinton was a big eater, a good eater. So mm-hmm. <laughs> I, mm-hmm. I see where this all, it, it, I can see how it all comes together. And then you wanting to, you know, go outside those restrictions and, and look at, look at the food. But um, it's a very interesting background to come at, uh, at the history of barbecue and where did the blackness come from? So yeah. that I want you to go back to because you were really on, on such a nice explanation there. Oh um, yeah, so yeah, so in in um, looking at the roots of barbecue, uh, look, I wanted to prove that barbecue, without a doubt, barbecue was African in origin. So I could cross my arms across my chest and shout <laughs> Wakanda forever. Um, but you know, uh, again, because this is not so well documented, it was hard to really see a through line. Um, and so what I did is I just looked at, uh, the earliest written records we have of West Africa in terms of food is, are from the Arabs who traveled in that region during the middle ages. So mm-hmm. pre-European contact and, uh, you know, it was hit or miss in terms of what they described as cooking. And from what I could tell in the area where most enslaved Africans, uh, came from, I didn't see a lot of analogs to what we would call barbecue, this pit mm-hmm. cooking. And so then I moved across the Atlantic and I said, well, what were Native Americans doing in the American South, what would become the American South? And um, from the earliest European encounters with indigenous people, they they often remarked on how they cooked. And so from looking at those various ways that Native Americans cook, you can you can start to see the antecedents of what we call barbecue. So my my feeling right now is that barbecue is Native American in origin fused with European grilling techniques, mm-hmm. uh, faster ways of cooking meat. Um, because a lot of the, what Native Americans were doing, were doing was uh, about preservation, not necessarily immediate consumption. Right. Um, and then later you get, Af- you get enslaved Africans and enslaved African-Americans into the mix as the ones who perfect this, this hybrid type of cooking that emerges. Um, so that, and you know, I, I leave the door open for a possible African provenance for barbecue, but I just think someone needs to find more evidence and, and connect the dots. Cause I, yeah. I'm an evidentiary, you know, I'm a lawyer by training in <laughs> right. politics. So I'm a, I'm an evidence-based kind of guy, but I could yeah. see how somebody with more creative or interpretive approach might reach a different conclusion. But yeah. um, I just think more dots need to be connected. Well, you, you mentioned, you said one word that is sort of always a, you know, hanging in the balance then, and you said grilling. So it's mm-hmm. kind of like, is it grilling versus barbecue? Because there <laughs> is grilling, which is just, as you said, mentioned before, the fast cooking of, of meat, or could be slow cooking too, but a yeah. method of cooking meat over fire has nothing really to do with barbecue per se, as we think of it. Um, especially when you said the West Africans and they bring their, their flavors, their, you know, their spices, mm-hmm. their things. What, mm-hmm. what is, what is your feeling about that? So, uh, yeah. So the, the whole debate between barbecuing and grilling is really interesting. So to me, grilling is high heat for a very short period of time. Smoking is, you know, much, much lower temperature, much longer period of time. And so barbecue emerges as kind of this intermediary 
or intermediate kind of cooking between those two extremes. Um, because it's not as, it's, it's much longer than the grilling, but it's not, it's not as long as, as smoking. Um, and this is, this is a time when barbecue was really cooking directly over hardwood burning coals. It wasn't until later that indirect smoking, you know, what we often think about with, uh, central Texas barbecue traditions really comes into prominence. And Mm -hmm. so barbecue goes at an expansion, gets, it gets a definition expanded during that. So, um, in in terms of the African role, then if 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 it's not the actual cooking apparatus and technique that Africans bring to the equation, what do they bring? And I, I feel like it is this adeptness with seasoning, um, and also becoming barbecue's principal cooks. They're the ones who perfect it over time. Whatever that uh, cooking method they inherited in the 17th and 18th centuries, by the time you get to the 19th century, newspaper reports of barbecue make African-Americans indispensable. In fact, they say in order to have authentic barbecue, you got to have a Negro man or a colored man do X, Y, or Z. Hmm. Interesting. And, and even, well, I mean, and not even, but especially on the, the enslaved um, African-American on the plantations. I mean, they, they were their own pit master. Well, they weren't their own pit masters. They, by any, by any stretch of the imagination, but they were, Pitmasters, um, and then when they but they carried that that was something they could take with them when they were no longer enslaved and they became pitmasters um, in a you know professional sense. Yeah. So during slavery, um, yeah, enslaved African Americans were pressed into cooking barbecue, not only for the plantation, but there were times when they would cook barbecue on their own terms. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, the the big plantation barbecues were the ones that got the most ink in terms of just press reports. But yeah, after emancipation, you've got this group of people um, with a very coveted and marketable skill, and they're able to cash in on it right. and do so on their own terms. And that's, that's when Bar of uh, African Americans not only had established themselves as barbecue's principal cooks, but then they become barbecue's most effective ambassadors, because uh, you know thousands of these uh, people, and I'm not I'm saying people on purpose because we have evidence that there were some women doing this as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, get on boats, trains, stagecoaches to all parts of the country to bring people a taste of authentic Southern barbecue. And then usually it was a cameo appearance, but, you know, there were times when people just stayed in a community because they're thinking, okay, well, you know, this is not a racial paradise, but it's a lot easier life than what I had back in the South. So maybe I'll just stay here. Yeah. And then they usually kickstart the local community's barbecue scene. Yeah. Well, you had mentioned in one of your, oh, I don't know, something somewhere and that I was reading about um, catering as well. And I know that... Uh, David Shields wrote a book on the first culinarians and mm-hmm. and uh, from mostly in the South and, you know, a handful of um, black African-American chefs. And primarily they were caterers. And there mm-hmm. would be these large, you know, especially for, you know, what was in demand were, were barbecue caterers. Oh, yeah. You know, so part of this uh, speaks to the challenge that African-Americans have as entrepreneurs. You know, they typically have not had the access to capital as their white peers. So, um, you know, getting a brick and mortar location to run a fixed you know, location restaurant 
uh, was a, a dream for most people that was never going to be realized. So mm-hmm. the thing with catering is you can be mobile, uh, less less infrastructure is required. Um, so it was a good intermediary spot for um, professional cooks to occupy in between being, say, a private cook at someone's home and being employed, working for somebody else in a restaurant. That's right. That's absolutely right. Well, you know, when you were um, in your book researching, looking back at, you know, trying to find some roots, and you were saying trying to trying to find some roots in West Africa before there was European contact, and you went. Uh, this book includes, you know, research and quotes from all the best people, anyone who is anyone in in the research of African American cookery. And we're talking Jessica Harris and Michael Twitty and Frederick Opie and um, Fran Oseo. I mean, you've got you've got everybody in this book. <laughs> so, yeah. Okay, you impressed me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I was just trying to canvas who were the leading thinkers and what were they saying about it. Because if somebody absolutely. had reached a conclusion, you know, I wanted to let my readers know that. No, I think that was that was absolutely very important and. Um, and it's you also include a lot of um, uh, graphics because you mentioned things that weren't pit cooking, but they were you know grilling, uh, raised grilling. I mean, there were so many different methods that evolved or that existed. Can you explain a little bit about what people might not know and realize about the different the different methods of cooking these meats? Sure. So a lot of the prehistory of barbecue, or at least the early history of barbecue, is essentially one narrative. Europeans showing up in the Caribbean, looking at indigenous people and, and, and observing a type of cooking that was new to them. And that eventually was called barbecue. Um, and, and what they saw were uh, indigenous people cooking on a raised platform above, uh, over a slow fire with um, fish, iguanas, vegetables, and all kinds of stuff on top of that raised platform. And then the idea was that after exposure to this type of cooking, it was brought to the American South when Europeans arrived with their animals, pigs, cows, sheep, goats, and barbecue was born. So that assumes that Native Americans weren't doing anything close to what was happening in the um, in the Caribbean. And so I just wanted to see, well, what was true about that? And so, um, you know, because uh, Native American society, like West African society, and I forgot to mention this earlier, these are oral traditions. And so, um, you know, it, it doesn't have the evidentiary record that we are used to given our tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, and I know this is fraught with peril, but I had to rely on what Europeans uh, wrote about what they saw um, as they were encountering Native Americans in the American South. And so we get several different types of cooking described. So one um, is that raised platform, which was in the Caribbean. So you see that in the American South. Mm-hmm. Another is kind of what I call piercing sticks. And one way to do that was to create kind of a lattice uh, structure of sticks and you would kill something and kind of fillet the meat or put strips of meat on the lattice and then kind of angle it towards the fire to cook it. Another thing was to get a really long stick, plant it in the ground and put a morsel of meat on the very tip of the stick. And then if you didn't have time to just hold it and, and cook it, like much like we do s'mores and other things today, you could plant that in the ground and the weight of the morsel would bend it towards the fire. And that was and one way And then it was called what? 
Oh yeah, barbecue, I guess. <laughs> well, or burnt. What about the burnt offerings or the burnt? <laughs> oh, oh the yeah, that's what I guess. Right? That's my goofy. Yeah, yeah that's I my goofy. That was, that was good. I like that though. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then you had spit cooking, and then you know Europeans would have recognized spit cooking. Um, yeah. Now this was not with metal because they didn't have really a metallurgy, but the um, Americans didn't. But you know it was sticking a long stick through the you know the crevice or the cavity of something, and then slowly turning it and cooking it. Um, and then you had the race platform as we had. And then you have this earth oven, which is a vertical hole. And you see earth ovens throughout the world. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea is, you know, you put uh, some kind of source, heat source on the bottom, usually a mixture of wood and stones because you set the wood on fire and then the stones would retain the heat for a long time. And you do alternate layers of moist vegetation and meat so that the meat doesn't burn up. And you typically people would cover that, sometimes bury it and you either cook it early in the day and eat it later, like at the evening, or you do the work later in the day and you just cook it overnight and then wake up and have a breakfast of champions. Mm -hmm. Um, And then you have this shallow kind of pit where not as deep as the vertical hole, but an impression is made in the ground. Your stones and your wood is put in that. And then sometimes the meat was cooked right on top of the stones. Mm -hmm. And so my argument is I can see how Someone was watching what Native Americans were doing and they're like, okay, well, maybe if we just do this, this, and this, we might have a better way of cooking our animals, which are larger than the venison or strips of meat that Native Americans were doing. And I think that puts us on the road to what was eventually called barbecue. Right. Well, you mentioned Native Americans. I mean, that's, you know, the any kind of uh, shallow pits always reminds me of, of, of the type of cooking that you see that was done mm-hmm. by those indigenous peoples, you know. Yeah. Um, and the and the raised platforms um, later on, like what a lot of um, African American immigrants brought back with them to the went, brought back to the South again, like Florida in particular. Um, I know Fred Opie did a a lot of writing about um, uh, about what was happening in Florida. And, yeah. Um, they had, I mean, they really had with oh, Zora Neale Hurston's um, observations, mm-hmm. and this is mm-hmm. late, I'm not, later on, right? But mm-hmm. they had very, very established and huge, I mean, humongous, uh, long, uh, can I say, almost like, you know, huge banquet tables, but they were barbecue, uh, yeah. raised barbecue platforms, right? Yeah. And so, um, and it's interesting, whenever somebody talks about Southern barbecue, they never talk about those race platforms, not not at least the early history of it. It's hmm. always that digging a trench, filling it with hardwood burning coals, uh, and having a whole animal butterflied, unless it was a cow, then they would quarter them. Um, and then somebody was doing all that cooking and saucing and serving, and then after the barbecue, entertaining and given the right racial dynamics of the South, if you wanted to have somebody do a lot of work and you didn't want to pay them, um, you made black people do it. <laughs> and so I, my argument is that African-Americans get associated with barbecue because it's so labor intensive. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. Sit by that. And you, well, you mentioned, a, you know, cow, even a quarter, a mm-hmm. quarter of a cow. Got to sit with that thing for, you know. 15 hours maybe or two days, 24 hours or two, 48 hours. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> depending on how hot the fire was. Right. Right. And so somebody had to keep, had to be there and keep flipping it. So it didn't burn up. Wow. And that, that was the role of the enslaved. Well, you mentioned another word, which I'm going to save until after our break. That is that 
liquidy stuff called sauce to sauce or not to sauce. And that's what we'll talk about when we come back from a break. So stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Gustiamo, the online store for ingredients and pantry staples from Italy. Gustiamo's mission is to improve the quality of Italian food in the States. They independently import the best and most authentic food from Italian farmers and food makers, wonderful people dedicated to their land and their traditions. When you're searching for quality Italian pasta, San Marzano tomatoes, and real extra virgin olive oil, Gustiamo has them all. Shop their vinegars, coffees, sweets, and so much more. From northern hilltop hazelnut farmers in Piemonte to southern sea salt millers off the coast of Sicily, Gustiamo works exclusively with small family food companies in Italy. When you shop with Gustiamo, you'll know that your ingredients are authentically Italian and of the highest quality. For our listeners, Gustiamo is offering a 10% discount on your online order with Gusti code HRN. Learn more at gustiamo.com. That's G U S T I A M O.com. Hi, we're back, and I'm speaking with Adrian Miller. Adrian Miller is um, an author and, and food scholar, a soul food scholar, an African American food scholar. And what else can I call you, Adrian? And his most <laughs> recent book is Black Smoke, African-Americans and the United States of Barbecue. Oh, what a great title, I have to say. Um, we, we ended um, before the break. I heard you mutter the word sauce. And that makes a huge difference in where the barbecue went and what's called barbecue. And you wrote, a very interesting um, answer that Jessica Harris gave about was there was there sauce way back when and where did it come from? And you recall that about the what was it in Martinique? Yeah. 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 So um, we we know that in the Caribbean, uh, where, where at least one form of barbecue arises, there was this uh, tradition of saucing with um, you know citrus based and chili based you know, a combination of kind of citric or citrus juices and chilies as a way to sauce meat. Um, and that's very similar to what emerges in the South in the sense that you have vinegar and red pepper as mm -hmm. kind of the go-to sauce. Mm -hmm. So uh, again, because we don't have a lot of documentation, you know, did, did Europeans look at that and, and borrow and modified and came up with their own sauce or was it really just an extension of what they were doing in Europe? Um, I could see like a vinegar sauce with black pepper. And so red pepper gets substituted because it was just much more plentiful, um, yeah. you know, in the Americas. Um, but yeah, that the barbecue was sauce. Now, the thing that's really maybe hard for some people to understand is that the early barbecue sauces were not really condiments as we think of them. It was something that was applied throughout the barbecuing process. Right. So if you've ever had whole hog barbecue done by somebody who knows what they're doing, you know that 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 gradual application of vinegar throughout the process um, gives it a depth of flavor that's quite delicious. I think a lot of people have an attitude about Carolina barbecue, especially North Carolina barbecue, because they they haven't gotten it made well. Mm -hmm. 
you know, there are people that cook it all a certain way, a certain way, and they say, "Oh, you want to make it North Carolina style? Okay, just um, pour this vinegar yeah, and right, red pepper it, sauce on mop it. Mop it with more vinegar." <laughs> and it's like, no, that's yeah. not how it was made traditionally. But you know, yeah. we're we're in, a, we're in a DIY kind of vibe right these days, so people want to have those <laughs> customizable sauces. Yeah, well, but I mean, you know, the sauce, as you say, sauce was was very important in terms of the flavors it imparted to the meat, not that, as you say, not used as a condiment. And and that's, I think, where a lot of this and you mentioned it, too, where the West African connection comes from, because a lot of these spices and flavors were brought from West African uh, homes that many of these people came from, I would imagine. Yeah. Uh, so we have West African influences. There, there's certainly, we can't ignore the possibility of Caribbean influences because we, we know now that there was a lot of exchange between the Caribbean and the American South. So I I, th- I just think it's a very interesting uh, convergence, amalgamation. I don't know what the right word is, but a, a really interesting coming together of so many different things in terms of culinary traditions. All right. All right. Um, in your in your opinion what i mean barbecue is something that spread uh, like wildfire i could say you know from from the south uh, where it was focused um, particularly during the time of slavery and then it reached all corners of, of this country certainly what do you attribute to that, the, the spread of that? Yeah, there's kind of two phases here. So the first phase is that barbecue goes travels with slavery. Yeah. So as barbecue originates in Virginia, what we understand is Southern barbecue, um, originates in Virginia. And as Virginians went to other parts of the country for opportunities, they brought enslaved African-Americans with them. And so the interesting thing is that barbecue was in the early days was really tied to Virginia. So you would have these slaveholders go to Kentucky, for example, and throw a barbecue, which they were used to as an entertainment. And that barbecue would be called a Virginia barbecue in Kentucky. Hmm. Uh, it was decades later that it would be called Kentucky barbecue. But um, and, we, and we see a lot of influence there. So because barbecue is tied with blackness and blackness was tied with slavery, all of those things go together until we get to the antebellum, you know, until we get to the Civil War era and then emancipation. After emancipation, it was really just these African-Americans who were the established best barbecuers, not the only ones, because there were certainly white men doing it around that time too. But the conventional wisdom was if you wanted really good barbecue, you had to have an African-American make it. Mm -hmm. Um, So they, they helped spread barbecue because they are recruited and brought to various places to do barbecue. And sometimes they would stay in a place. Yeah. Well, and the, and then um, looking at more, you know, going ahead a little bit and looking at more modern days, you see, the they brought with them their their religious practices, their churches, and then there was the, you know, that that practice of the church suppers, and the church barbecues. I mean, that had to have spread. People sat up and took note. I'm sure. Oh yeah, the church barbecues. I love the church barbecues. So. Um, I did a whole separate chapter on church barbecue because I was wondering, you know, what 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 would happen when African Americans could barbecue on their own terms? And the black church is one of the uh, earliest autonomous institutions in the black community. 
So, um, but you know, it has roots in slavery. Uh, so I, I looked at kind of the context of um, these revivals and camp meetings that would happen, and um, how the enslaved kind of comprehended those events and how barbecue tied in. Uh, and then, you know, preachers really understood that barbecue can build community. Uh, it's really preachers and politicians who kind of figure that out early. Hmm. And uh, and so a lot of times uh, church was not only important for, you know, helping your soul, but it was also uh, a very important social center. And so given the geographic isolation of, of the rural South, a lot of times people wouldn't see their neighbors unless they saw them at church. And so going to church and having an, a meal afterwards was a very important part uh, uh, of just rural life. Um, and I have to tell you, Linda, um, that, you know, studying barbecue, learning more about it has been distracting to my spiritual life because anytime I read the Bible and there's a mention of burnt offerings, my mind starts to wander, wander, <laughs> you know? Um, and, uh, yeah, yeah. So it's been, it's been a challenge, uh, but I'm focused now. Uh, so, but yeah, I just, you see not only this in the rural South, but also when you go to urban settings, when um, African-Americans during the Great Migration start to come to urban, you know, areas across the country, uh, even though it was an urban context, barbecue was an important food to help build that connection. And there's a whole tradition of black churches having a barbecue restaurant affiliated with the church. So, you know, all, all kinds of churches have a barbecue during the summer, right? It's just right. part of the event calendar. But to have an ongoing business, um, and I have no idea what the correlation is between preaching the word of God and smoking meat, but it's definitely a thing uh, with African-American pastors. Yeah. Well, the, um, the certainly the, you know, the smell had to permeate the entire community <laughs> in the neighborhood. People are going to come over and say, get interested and say, hmm, what's cooking there, you know, and, and that certainly popularized uh, the barbecue for those uninitiated, uninitiated um, before that time. Yeah. Um, uh, another question that is sort of, a, I guess, a tough question is that, you know, they often say that imitation is, you know, the best form of flattery or however that saying goes. Do you really consider, I mean, now, without without having said that somebody didn't get their recognition or they got pushed out of a, a restaurant or something. But do you consider white people doing barbecue cultural appropriation really? I mean, talk to me about that. Oh, no, I, I don't. Um, I think there's plenty of room in the cookout at the cookout for everyone. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I don't think it's cultural appropriation. What I don't like is this idea that only white people dudes make the best barbecue right? or the authentic <laughs> barbecue because that's the vibe that exists now. Um, and that's mainly because African-Americans are not getting a spotlight when it comes to barbecue storytelling. So, you know, there are a lot of people that are new to barbecue in the last couple decades. And based on the media that they're seeing, it's no wonder they don't know about African-American barbecue traditions because they're not represented. Right. Right. I mean, one of the best, well, one of, I know a lot of good barbecues, but you know, mm -hmm. one of the better ones is a woman who grew up in Arkansas with, um, in a black community and she's not black, she's white. And she, um, let me tell you, she has a way with 
a brisket that I just I could never duplicate in a million years. It's it's phenomenal. Um, oh wait, so she she's from Arkansas, but was a brisket specialist. Yeah, because okay. uh, you know, oh, I forgot to say she's white and she's Jewish. Now, I don't know if that has anything to do with it, but she came to New York for a while and and then and, and you know cooked cooked um, American you know uh, New York Jewish food. I don't 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 ask me why, but. It's it's something to behold. It really is. But barbecue, wow. yeah, barbecue. You know, people who. I mean, first of all, a good chef is a good chef, a good cook, right? And mm-hmm. and they should not. They should, if they do something well and they borrowed it from someone, they definitely should give credit where credit is due, right? I mean, that's, oh, yeah. I think that's the big, that's the big thing that irks me. Don't, you know, don't say yeah. this is totally your recipe or your method or whatever, you know, but. Yeah, no, I agree. I was actually asked, interviewed about this recently and I just say, Hey, look, if you make food from another person's culture, say where you got it from and then honor the culture by making it well, because mm-hmm. what really gets me is when they make a nasty version of it. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, if the circumstances call for compensation, then you should do that if you're in a position to do that. Yeah. Um, and yeah. yeah. So th- those are my three kind of guidelines to cultural yeah. appropriation. Now, you know, I, I am in, I think I'm in the minority because I know quite a few people who are quote unquote, stay in your lane. Yeah. Um, you know, kind of opinions of this. And my thing is, look, um, Draw that out to its natural conclusion. That means me as an African-American, if I love making sushi or Italian food or whatever, I can't make it. Right. I should just stick to my African. And I'm like, that doesn't make sense either. Yeah. Um, so that's why I think it's our nature to look at other cultures, fall in love with something, and you just want to do it. Absolutely. I mean, it's a small world, you know. It's not not like it used to be where one thing belongs only on that side of the country and this belongs on this side of the country, you know. Yeah. You do highlight, um, you know, fast forwarding. Well, not even though some of it's some are, unfortunately, have passed. And uh, Arthur Bryant, I recall quite fondly. Um, but there are um, an old Arthur I never knew. You you highlight several um, very well known barbecue chefs, cooks, uh, pitmasters, whatever they call themselves. Um, and in doing so, who, what, did you choose just these few for particular reasons? And if so, why? So one thing I wanted to do is um, I wanted to find people who really brought the themes of a chapter to life. Because um, I'm really big on writing books that are accessible and fun. This and is a, I just I, find and that- I, I want to I just inject that right away. Is that from beginning to end, from your, your introduction on – it's it's a fun read. You make it a good read, and we'll say that. Go on. <laughs> cool. Mission accomplished. <laughs> um, and I, I just find that it's just so easy to connect with just interesting people. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, one of the things about combing through these historical newspapers is every once in a while you find a gem. Mm-hmm. Because uh, newspapers were much more interested in capturing the life of a community. And so journalists were going to, you know, try to find out the backstory. Um, rather than just giving the bare bones of an event. And so we, we get these instances. Now, they weren't uniform, right, because of racism and other things. Some right. people didn't think it was worth their time to talk to the African-American cook. But we do get several examples where they do. 
And when they, when they get interviewed, when you hear these cooks in their own words talking about their craft, their life experience, I mean, some of the stuff is just, it's just gold. So, uh, yeah, so I was just trying to find people who evoke the themes of a chapter. And of course, I had far more people to choose from than I could actually put in the book. So yeah, I well, tried to find the very best stories. I yeah, that's, that's, that's true. I mean, it's true in so many, um, uh, in so many regards and different cuisines and, and you did a very nice job there in highlighting them and highlighting them in a very positive way. Um, and you know, I remember the very first barbecue joint when in growing up in, in the Midwest that it was a rib joint and mm-hmm. it was owned by a black family and mm-hmm. it was in this kind of shack, but it sort of looked like a, uh, McDonald's shack, let's say. It's, you know, mm-hmm. It was just a walk-up window, mm-hmm. and you walk up and you get your paper plate, and it was a very wet. Um, what was it called? It was called the Pit. That's what it was called. It was called the Pit. Do um, you mind me asking what city? I'm just curious. South Bend, Indiana. Ah, <laughs> one of my good friends is from South Bend. Oh. Uh, do you have any idea if that place is still open? No, it's not. I know it's not because okay. I I go back on. Frequently, and, and uh, I, I mourn the fact that it's not around. It was great for late night, and it was good for yeah. uh, you know any time. And I was quite young at the you know then at the time when I lived there. So okay. we're going back many, 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 many years. And <laughs> <laughs> um, but it was it. it I learned a sort of I, I it sort of, it was inculcated into the culture of of barbecue from them in that way, you know, like the paper plate that was sopping, no matter how many paper plates they put under it. Yeah. Well, that's an, that's another reason why the current state of affairs is just so head scratching because I think, I think your story is like a lot of people. I think if you press people to say, ask them, you know, what what was your first taste of barbecue, Mm. Uh, commercial barbecue, right? Outside their own home. I think most people would say, oh yeah, there was this uh, African-American that made barbecue at this place. Yeah. And, and this, I mean, it was something because my father was from the South, um, from Tennessee. So mm-hmm. this was a total, this was totally different from what, you know, he would have ever eaten. And it, was, it came from, you know, the back hill country. I think they mm. called him, I think they called it hillbilly in those days, you know. So he was, ah, okay. He so was back, Appalachia? You know, yeah, and, yep. I don't think okay. he wore shoes till he was an adult. Yeah. But, <laughs> um, wow. But they... Uh, yeah, he traveled all the way north to Indiana, right? <laughs> um, mm. But this was, I mean, this was really just a, a, a delicacy for for anyone from wherever they came. And because uh, you, you mentioned, the reason I brought that up, um, aside from it was evoking fond memories for me, um, was because you said, well, then what happened? Did they get pushed, you know, some of these people got pushed out? Of the bricks and mortar restaurants, they got pushed out because they were a black man or black woman, or was it just the sign of the times where you know the rents went up, just like you know a lot of people lost their restaurants. Who knows? Right. Um, I'm sure that it had a lot of the former involved in it, especially yeah, given a, the era, yeah. whatever era we're speaking, you know. Right. Yeah. You know, first, first of all, I think even across eras, it's just hard to run a restaurant anyway. Oh yeah. Um, and then, you know, if you want to pass it on to your kids, are they interested? 
Right. You know, and you know, we we know that quite a few restaurateurs started their business uh, with the intent of their kids having a better life, not that their kids would go into the business, um, so they could go on and do other things. Um, but yeah, so that gentrification, uh, government regulation, whether it's safety, air pollution, you know, a, a host of things. Oh yeah, I you didn't know, think yeah, about that. Yeah. Right. It's just it's just tough to do a barbecue joint these days, yeah. and now um, it's and, and I think the, another main thing is just access to capital, access to capital mm-hmm. and access to customers, mm-hmm. were things that African Americans either were outright denied or significant hurdles were put in their way to getting right. those things. Absolutely, absolutely. And now, who knows what will evolve now in this post pandemic era? How it will be rebuilt? A lot of what was you know, what kind of suffered and many mm-hmm. of them closed. We'll see, mm-hmm. we'll see what happens. So when did barbecue hit Denver? <laughs> so barbecue has been in Denver in the earliest days. I mean, uh, 1863. Yeah. Uh, you had before, something in there about that. I saw that. Yeah. <laughs> 1863, we had barbecues here in Colorado. Um, it's a town a little bit North called golden where it showed up. Um, and so, uh, yeah, it was just, uh, and, I, and I love telling the story of Columbus B. Hill, who was the um, one, one of these freelance barbecuers who shows up in Denver uh, in the 1870s. And on, in short order, he's doing barbecue for, you know, 5,000, 10,000, 25,000 people hmm. at different civic events. And I just thought it was fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. Well. There's just so much, so much fascinating stuff and so much good reading in this book. And it's such a, um, an important uh, cultural part of America. I mean, it's, it's American food, but it's Southern food. You can't say it's soul food. It's, it's an entity unto itself, don't you think? I agree. I just think, um, I think that I, I w- originally started thinking that, hey, um, soul food, Southern food, barbecue are all the same thing. But in time, I started to think, you know what? I think it's its own thing. Yeah. Now, the, the, the crossover is this. In a lot of soul food restaurants, there's barbecue on the menu. Now, it may be baked, but it does show up on the menu. Mm. Um, and then a lot of black-owned soul food restaurants have um, – uh, sorry. But yeah, black-owned barbecue restaurants have soul food sides. Right. So there, there is some kind of crossover, yeah, but I, I still think barbecue is its own thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I have to, I have to end saying, you know, what, what do I, what do I want to eat right now? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It makes me hungry. All right. So if you had your druthers, what's your favorite, what's your favorite kind of barbecue to eat? Oh, I can't do that oh, to you. I, I can't I must- do that to you. <laughs> Yeah, I'm but, a spare rig guy through yeah, and through. Yeah, that's yeah. my thing. That's my touchstone. I mean, the brisket, as I was talking about, there's this woman makes a, a great, she's still around, makes a great brisket. But ribs, there's just something about ribs that just speak, they speak barbecue to me. Yeah. Yep. Definitely do. Yep. A nice spare rib. I mean, that's just hard to beat. Well, a few burnt ends maybe, but you know, <laughs> <laughs> we can take that too. Well, Adrian, yeah. it's always a pleasure to talk to you. I get the smart answers and the fun answers and, and I appreciate that. And, and I have to say that I recommend this book 
whole, you, hey, if you want to buy it just for the recipes, go ahead and buy it just for the recipes. But there aren't that many in it, and they're, but they're really, really good. How many recipes are there in it? I didn't kind of forget. There are 22. Okay, that's, that's, that's respectable. 22 recipes. Yeah. Oh, it says it right on the cover. Excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> 22 great okay, so, recipes, yeah. Yeah, hush, hush. There are a few more in there, but they're historical ones, so they're not right, really adapted you know, for the modern we're, kitchen. We're describing, 22. yeah, back in there. But yeah. Black Smoke. African Americans and the United States of Barbecue. And I like that picture of whose cap was that saying returning, returning barbecue to its to the pitmasters or to its origins. What was it? Anyway, it's it's such a great historic read. It's it's historical read and it's um, a a drooling read because everything sounds so wonderful. And it's uh, you know it's it's we did it all. We got it all in there. And yeah, thank you. Thank you for sharing it with me, and I can't wait to hear what's going to come up next. Sounds (laughs) good. Stay tuned. Yeah, right. And thank you for listening. This has been another Taste of the Past. And I want to also thank Gustiamo.com for sponsoring this episode, and of course, HeritageRadioNetwork.org for bringing you all the best in food radio. Don't forget to go to HeritageRadio.org and... Click on that beating heart in the upper right-hand corner. We can all use a little love, no matter what you can give. It helps us stay on the air. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. A Taste of the Past is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can also find us at Facebook.com slash Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like tell your friends. And please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.